There was a um, TV show that uh, came on and uh, published by the uh, BBC. It was um, Jekyll and Hyde. I think the name of the thing was Hyde. And it was uh, a very, very, very well-done masterpiece, in my opinion, that uh, depicted this um, this man, you know, I mean, it's basically the whole story of Jekyll and Hyde. And uh, it was a six-part series, and one of the things I noticed about this guy, this character, the primary character and everything, was he played the part so exceedingly well. I have never seen somebody that was so in character and um, just did it with such the transition from one person to the other for the character and everything was beyond anything I'd ever seen before. Um, the facial characteristics, the um, pretty much everything about it was just like, how how the hell did he do this and everything? Now, I had rarely seen this before. There was another time I'm watching uh, Star Trek Voyager. Um, I don't remember the episode, and I think part of me might may have blocked it out because of this. But uh, the doctor, he's the uh, electro uh, electronic medical hologram. Um, he uh, he ends up um, kind of going crazy and everything, and they end up um, uh, he ends up taking over kind of the ship and everything. And with this, he his transition from one personality, from the normal personality, to the other is absolutely remarkable. The facial characteristics, the uh, the mouth, the, the eyes, um, the body language, the entire thing is so, so absolutely different than what's normal. It's just like, how the hell do they do it? How does he do it? You know, flat out. You know, it's just like, it's amazing, you know, the transformation of physical, of the physical body, you know, that these people did. Now, before I had told myself this was acting, right, you know, that uh, it was just nothing more than an actor um, playing a part and everything, and they were just good at what they did. But I'm finding, I'm really kind of questioning if that's just the case here. You know, so, I mean, the other story goes, I'm watching a window in an alternate reality, and these people are real. You know, so, and in both cases, both of these cases, they they play remarkably different personalities. And these personalities um, are literally different people literally different people. You know, Jekyll and Hyde, one's a mass murderer, one's a doctor. Um, in the, uh, in, in Star Trek, interestingly enough, you know, it's kind of the same analogy. One's a, a doctor, the other one's kind of like a, a murderer, you know? So, I mean, it's, it, to some degree, there's this dichotomy of character and everything that, uh, uh, that's exemplified in other of their TV shows and movies and everything, like the TV shows or the movies Split, you know, where the character diverges and he's living with 36 personalities or something like that within the same body. Now, this phenomenon's definitely gone on, you know, in, in the public, where basically somebody ends up having multiple personalities, one personality that, in a literal sense, has diabetes. You know, has a a well-known disease, and in the other personality, that disease quite literally disappears. It's gone.
completely gone. And that's the interesting thing I, I'm, I'm seeing over and over again is, you know, the body physiologically, you know, can remarkably change in between personalities. You know, so one personality could have a host and list of elements and the other personality doesn't see them. Plain and simple. Just doesn't exhibit them. You know, so it makes me wonder, you know, is cancer kind of the same way? You know, is, um, or is Alzheimer's, is, are any of these diseases treatable by a severe alteration in the personality? That's, that's really what, uh, what has me questioning. It's just like, is the answer, is the answer to resolving an issue, you know, a life-threatening issue, you know, a disease that doesn't have an answer for it, is the answer to resolving that nothing more than an alteration in the fundamental personality and everything? A massive change, you know, in that personality. I do wonder, you know, if that's actually, a if that's actually the possibility here. You know, but, uh, I mean, and why I'm saying that is the physiology, the facial features and everything, you know, of the doctor literally changes and everything. You know, his demeanor, his bedside manner, he's so nice and everything, and all of a sudden he goes to this alternative personality and his his lips, you know, droop. His face, you know, literally droops with it and his eyes become more dilated or less dilated and, you know, his pupils become a little bit... Uh, you know, thinner, um, his, he hunches over a little bit, you know, so that part can certainly be faked, and, you know, I mean, all I'm saying is, you know, from an acting perspective, you know, absolutely, there's, there's still the acting as the answer, but it comes a point where, you know, um, something that can be acted appears so perfectly real that it's, and because it's been exhibited in real life people and everything, it's interesting that the actor, you know, can portray these things that actually happens to real life people in the real world and everything, which does beg the question, is there some power to this transformation of character, and especially more importantly, the transformation of mind? And can that transformation of mind be leveraged in a medical way to overcome problems, overcome issues? There's a book um, by Kevin Trudeau um, that came out a couple of years ago and got into um, holistic cures and that kind of stuff. And um, I, I read probably about half of it. And uh, he starts getting into um, some stuff that really kind of just... He's talking about uh, substitutes and everything for pharmaceuticals, and for me, I really wasn't looking for that. You know, what I was looking for was more or less the holistic, the con the concepts of the whole body. You know, that your whole body has the capability to be able to heal the problems that occur within you naturally. It's just a matter of understanding what to become yourself. You know, in order to basically achieve that and everything. And uh, I, I think that uh, one of the answers to some of the medical problems that happen are presented to us by what's uh, referred to as an ailment, you know, as a psychological disease. You know, um, these psychological syndromes, if harnessed by somebody with a conscious mind and a keen insight into their own psyche and, you know, reflective capability to understand themselves, can, in a literal sense, um, to some degree, defeat the disease through a simple change in the mindset. So, anyways, it's um, just an idea and a concept after seeing this bipolar episode and everything. I thought it was pretty interesting.
I don't know where I last left this. But uh, right now I'm actually uh, in the character modification screen for Star Trek uh, Online. And um, I'm really seeing some cool stuff with it. Just as if it's organic and everything. Or as if there's a whole big huge team of developers on it which is making it absolutely far more dynamic than it ever was before um, at least with the modifications and everything that are occurring for it. It's really kind of cool. I mean, I know that uh, development shift, uh, shifted over to um, to China and um, I honestly think they're doing a good job with it. I was a little bit worried before you know, um, when they I learned that they ended up uh, had having taken this, but uh, no, they've actually done a, a bang up job with some of the um, some of the back end stuff and everything. Some of the interesting things they've been adding to it and everything. So I gotta give them kudos for it. But uh, one of the things I've noticed is um, it, it's just uh, some nuances, some weird things. For instance. Um, the height. Um, the height of the character you can actually adjust anywhere between five foot six and six foot four, and um, it, except for it goes five foot twelve, or five foot five foot ten, five foot eleven, five foot twelve, and then six foot, which would imply that there's an extra inch in there somewhere. It's kind of odd, isn't it? You know that uh, I mean that they have a five foot twelve and a, then a six foot. I don't know. I thought that was really weird. And the other thing I found really weird was um, you actually, uh, the waist, they have waist attachments and everything, and, and that's exactly what it says. It says waist, and uh, the waist for them is um, located just above the belly button. Now, for me, the waist was always considerably lower than that. You know, kind of like... Um, no, about four inch, no, three inches above my crotch, you know. So I don't know. I thought that was kind of weird, kind of interesting. And the the other thing was hip, hips attached left. Now for me, um, you would think this this would mean the attachment would actually go on the hip, right? Which is basically if you were to draw a line and you know look at uh, somebody's you know penis or vagina and you draw a line to the right or left of it, boom, that's the hip, right? Well, not, at least that's what I thought. Um, if, no, it's, in this case here, it's, uh, it's actually about six inches below the growing and, uh, off to the right-hand side. So, it's kind of like weird locationing and everything, you know, for some of these things. Uh, weird, you know, I, I guess it's, you know what it is, it's just, um, if you think about alternate universes and alternate realities, the de development of um, of identification of terms and what they pertain to and everything um, could very much be different. That's actually what uh, what I've realized. You know, so what what could be referring to, you know, and an I, you know, should be obvious to me and you, right? You know, but uh, let's say somebody else actually heard this term I and uh, they didn't have a reference, a dictionary to it, they just knew it was an appendage on the body and um, as a result, you know, the ear becomes the eye and vice versa, the, the eye becomes the ear. So this is, I mean, it's kind of funny if you think about alternate universes, you, you take it down the slope of how far and how much can be possible for slight alterations and variations in between different universes and everything. It could be really kind of profound, kind of interesting, kind of bizarre too. 
So I just, I mean, I'm seeing it right here with basic um, measurement system. So they give it in meters. That's the interesting thing. So it's 1.6, actually, hold on. I'm going to say this. So I'm going to reduce it and put it, put it to, because I was bugging me. So six, 1.62 meters. Now I'm going to do a, a cross-reference to this. Meters to feet. 1.62 and you have 5.3 feet now this is really weird so if I go up to 1.63 is it I'm gonna make sure no 1.83 okay my bad 1.8 two meters. Five point nine seven one one two. That's in feet. So I'm gonna take this to inches. Yeah. So what they did was they rounded up not not understanding that uh it's kind of bizarre. I mean it's it's clear that the uh, game isn't uh, made primarily in America and everything. But in any case, to all y'all developers, 1.83, let's see, it is 72.04 inches, which is 6 foot, but uh, 5 foot 12, that's an interesting, uh, 5 foot 12 doesn't exist, you know, it's, it's, if it's 12 inches, it's going to be 6 foot, so, in any case, I found, uh, I just found it interesting. You could really screw something up, you know. But, um, in any case, it's, um, I j just, uh, had to point that out and everything. thought it was intriguing. I got a uh, new Vulcan crewmate, and he's an engineer, so I'm just, uh, in here creating a male uniform for the first time. And I'm pretty content with this one. It's... Definitely on the, um, somebody might say effeminate side, but it's basically, it's got pastels, so it's got a red, it's kind of like a, um, eh, like a soft red for the uh, top, along with a, a yellowish color, and then has, um, some baggy pants, which are my favorite anyways, and, uh, these are white and, uh, yellow, white and this, um, Kind of like an an off yellow color, so reminds me of um, a little bit of a uniform that you actually might have seen during Desert Storm for the bottoms, um, with the color for that color for uh, for the bottoms and everything, and the same color boots and everything too. So yeah, I think that's kind of good. That looks good. So in any case, I thought I'd uh, thought I'd share that. Okay, I just realized something else, too. So, the duty officer system within the game. Um, every ship has a contingent that you can actually keep uh, keep on staff. Basically, they're more or less responsible for maintaining it, too. You know, for doing any number of things. And you also hand out assignments to them, too. And typically, you can only have up to 20 assignments and everything. And uh, in order to achieve these assignments, you've uh, got to select from duty officers. And there's a whole wide swath of uh, different careers 
that uh, that are within the duty officer system. Um, they're, they're categorized into major classifications here, such as uh, goes duty officers tactical, security, engineering, um, operations, science, medical, and civilian. And uh, within each one of these is uh, subcategories. So. Um, and are actually specific jobs and responsibilities and everything. So, for instance, I did dive down into engineering and I've got consultant, damage control engineer, diagnostic engineer, fabrication engineer, maintenance engineer, matter, matter antimatter specialist, systems engineer, technician, and work core engineer. So, I've seen this system grow. Um, in different types of races and species that have actually been in here, um, the, pretty much since uh, since I started playing way back in what 2010, 2011, and everything when it first came out, and um, as I as I've played it, I've seen more and more um, different species come online too. So to some degree, I feel like okay, maybe. Um, and, and what I'm seeing is a lot of duplication with names. So you'll 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 see many names. Everyone has a name, and uh, and the different species. For instance, here I'm looking at um, Satan. He's a Vulcan. He's a male, and he's a the highest rank they can get, which is the Master Chief Petty Officer for the duty officers. And uh, his he's um, very he's considered the Master Chief Petty Officer makes him very rare. So there's basically four different grades for each uh, each duty officer that you can select from and everything. Um, I know this all sounds complicated and everything, but uh, it's just think about this from a corporate perspective and everything. Let's say you're a corporation owner, and um, within your corporation, you've got three primary areas, generally speaking. You've got finance, you've got um, operations, and you've got um, basically sales and marketing. So the, you've also got IT, op, IT stuff and everything in there. And, um, you know, to some degree, it depends on the company as well. Um, you could potentially have security. So that's actually what they've done. They've segmented into what it is uh, six major classification areas combined with civilian um, roles and responsibilities as well. So you've got science operations, medical, you know, um, in, in a starship, you've got to have medical staff and everything. It's the difference between this and the company. So within that company and within those specific organizational structures and everything, you're going to have um, have people that are actually reporting within the relative uh, within the relative hierarchy of which uh, which they're contained in. You know, so for instance, uh, systems engineers. Um, in this case, it's reporting through engineering, um, and uh, and in science, um, you could look at somebody in science, and you know it could be some something like a um, oh, I'm trying to think of something because I don't want to take my hand off of this one right now. Um, botanist or biologist, those are different sciences and everything, and each one reports up through the uh, science chain and everything. So. Now, for a while here, I've been actually, I've been trying to ask, I've been asking myself the question, you know, what is this showing me? You know, so rather than dismissing any of this as basically being bad programming or anything like that, I'm, I'm going to say, no, this is actually valid programming. Now, what does it show me? Why do I see different people, you know, uh, here's another for instance, a Mr. Marion Francis Dolmar. 
And Marion Francis, he he looks unique in contrast to the other characters. Absolutely, his facial features are definitely more defined, um, definitely a more intriguing individual and everything. And he is a master chief petty officer, and uh, he's got um, you know he's a systems engineer as well. And again, he's a very very rare individual. However, um, he's the highest cost one. Uh, system engineer there is and to put this in relative sense I, the most I've ever had is 2 million energy credits and this guy costs um, 42 million you know so I'm not shitting you when I say he literally exceeds the budget of any any officer I've ever had you know and uh, I mean I might actually just save up just to get him just to you know to see if he actually adds benefit to my team or anything like that um, I like the idea of adding characters like this, you know, just because I feel like it's actually affecting me physically, you know, to some degree, you know, it's kind of weird. So in any case, um, I, I asked the question, why Marion? Three, Marion has three, you know, four, seven, he has seven, he's up here seven different times and everything. However, five of them are different. He's, each one indicates, uh, every time you look at an officer, an officer belongs to a, a faction. And that faction that he belongs to is uh, more or less the Federation and the Klingons and the Cardassians. Um, you've got probably about a handful of different factions, maybe about six in all, maybe seven or eight at most. Um, now, the primary Marion... Uh, the first one that I came across, he belongs to um, the Federation faction. But then, as you go down the list and everything, you see other ones that belongs to the Klingon faction. But he's still a human. Now, this is the thing that I'm actually, you know, intrigued by. How do I answer this question? What is he? You know, what what am I seeing? Let's say this is all um, real, and I'm manipulating things through reality. And uh, this is a direct link to a man named Marion in an alternate um, reality. And then all of a sudden, boom, I've got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, seven different realities with seven different versions of Marion that I'm actually peeking through with this. I find that kind of intriguing. You know, if you've got one one individual, and you've got one individual from seven different realities, you know what does that uh, what does that do? You know, can you actually sway and alter that person's life and everything? Now I'm going to do a weird lookup. Marion Francis Dolmer. I'm going to do Marion Francis Dolmer. Now, I have no doubt that Star Trek Online is going to be one of the first things that produces this, but I have the sneaking suspicion that somebody like this might actually pop up No. Nope. 
I thought that uh, could could be, be potentially pointing to a real character, a real person. Um, I also see a lot of reference to him being in a temporal mission. But it's not a train, a temporal beat. So, in any case, um, it's interesting because you're seeing, I see duplicates of these characters and everything. It's just like, nah, this isn't duplicates. Let's uh, come up with a better answer for it. And the answer is peeking into alternate realities. I'm looking at versions, you know, and this is actually, to some degree, Borg um, like drones, you know, that have been assimilated and brought into Starfleet, uh, into the Federation and everything. And, you know, it's always it's always my um, my suspicion that uh, the Federation and the Borg were one and the same, two different perspectives for one and the same entity, um, displaced visually and displaced by time and everything, and um, to some degree, you know, the Federation and its assimilation of planets you know, through inv invitation to the Federation and everything, is not that much different than what the Borg do, you know, through the assimilation of planets and everything. The only difference, the big difference between the two is one's uglier than the other one. <laughs> so, in any case, you know, I'm, I've got the sneaking suspicion that the uh, Federation itself is, you know, it's interesting, you know, from that perspective, but uh, why there's many different variants. I think it's not the only character that's repeated. There's many characters. I mean, almost every name is has multiple references up here. And it's just like, huh. You know, there's no uniqueness to names and everything. Um, but maybe there is. Maybe they're just seeing into alternate realities and pulling this into, and the system's just aggregating the many different reality versions of them. So maybe if I actually found the real-life version, you know, of a character and everything, perhaps I can actually start influencing that character if I was to go and acquire all of their all of their respective uh, duty officers with the name the na name they share. So that was one theory, but I, I ended up looking for all my friends and everything and I didn't see anybody I knew. So it's just like, eh, you know, maybe one day. So in any case, when I'm done minute, done messing with them, I might just uh, remove them from my list and everything. Let them go back to the ether. So, in any case. Um, yeah, that's about it for now. Uh, I'll probably be back later. It's 1027. I, um, I saw something today. I'm going to have a hard time fully uh, understanding what I saw. Uh, it wasn't in the real world. It was in the um, in Star Trek Star Trek Online, and it wouldn't have been so weird had the game not been online. But because it was online, it really kind of I don't know has me a little bit um, on the confused, um, conf not necessarily confused, but just more or less wondering, you know, questioning, what did I see? Um, and I've seen it a couple times too. So, my character has a uh, part of their skill tree. Um, 
It's a, a specialization is a temporal operative. And just today, I got a skill called continuity. So basically, my character can manipulate time. And um, here's the uh, skill. When reduced to less than 10% of your hull, meaning my ship, my ship's hull, basically my ship's health, you immediately be removed from danger. Your ship will teleport approximately 8 kilometers from its current location, become briefly untargetable, and have its hull and shields restored by a large amount. The action will also wipe all accumulated threat versus NPCs. After, after, after continuity is triggered, your, your ship will perform at less than capacity for a short period of time. As the timelines adjust to this sudden shift of probability, so it's this last part is really what has me has me questioning because this is what I saw um, as I'm fighting, you know, and we've got uh, probably about 40 of us that are actually in this fight and everything. As I'm fighting, all of a sudden, I end up. Um, I it takes some major hits. You know, I'm down to 40 percent and down to 30, and kaboom! I'm down. I'm just about you know. 10 is about 5% very quickly and all of a sudden boom it's almost like time rewound and I was at the beginning of the fight and I was teleported like they said about 8 kilometers away full health and but the thing was it was almost as if time had been reversed to the point that the fight hadn't started and uh, that was the, the trippy part it wasn't just for me it was for everybody. Now, this was kind of a, a trip. I mean, you know, so I thought, um, I thought, okay, that's kind of weird. I didn't, I mean, you know, from a <laughs> probabilistic standpoint, you know, I understand, but, you know, so I had seen on another character, I had seen um, what I believe to be this same skill, and I was wondering what other people saw from their perspective. So, it was uh, about two days ago, I saw somebody else with, I think, this skill, this continuity of skill. And as I'm, as we're fighting and everything, I see they're getting blown up, and I'm trying to heal people and everything, throwing heals here and there, and couldn't get to him, and uh, he ends up getting down to below 10%, and all of a sudden, boom, he rewinds he moves back, physically moves back. So it's like he's he's put in reverse. He's more or less tossed about eight kilometers eight kilometers back and there's nothing else that goes on. The fight's still going on, just like it was before. Now, notice the difference. You know, I noticed the fight itself fully rewound. Where from the perspective of within it the fight was still raging on, and nothing really had changed other than seeing his ship move back and everything. So, you know, that's, it, it's trippy, you know, so let me, let me restate this to make sure I'm perfectly clear. So, from the perspective of the, of the person that's, exi that's witnessing this, the continuity, um, adjustment, um, I'm seeing a complete change in, in a reverse of the fight back from what it was before or back back to what it was at the very beginning of the fight.
you know, so let's say, you know, you're going into, you know, let's say you're, you're the quarterback, and um, you're about to, uh, to throw it to a receiver, and all of a sudden, you know, you realize that was just the, the wrong play, somebody pummels you. All of a sudden, you know, as you go through this, as you get pummeled, something triggers in your head. Boom, you rewind. And all of a sudden, you know this next time not to go in that direction and to throw and to throw that ball, you know, to, I don't know, to basically dodge and weave and maybe throw the ball to the same person, but this time dodge and weave a little bit differently because you got, you got somebody coming at you. Well, that's what this was like. I had the chance to do this uh, entire thing again, and instead of heading left this this time, you know, into this heat of the battle where I got destroyed, I ended up going to the right and going around it a little bit and taking my time, you know, so and make sure I just didn't repeat the same thing again. So that was really trippy. It was just like, wow, you know, I didn't expect that, you know, but um, but seeing seeing somebody do the continuity from the outside and everything, I didn't see the fight change. I just saw that he pulled back. Now, I'm trying to understand the discrepancy. You know, because I, in a literal sense, saw the fight start over today. The entire thing start over. (laughs) Where yesterday, when I'm watching it from within it, there was no starting over the fight. It was, the fight was continuous, you know, so, this is actually what I'm having a hard time understanding. I saw him move back, I suppose you would see it, if time is actually being manipulated, it's not just relative to me, or to my character, it's relative to me. Do you understand what I'm saying? The temporal manipulation isn't just occurring on the computer screen. It's actually occurring to me in the real world. I'm trying to let that sink in. It's kind of trippy. I'm trying to think of the implications of what that means. I'm playing the game. I'm experiencing a manipulation of time directly by playing the game. I can't discount that it's possible. But the question is, when I saw that guy move back yesterday, I saw a continuous change, so it's not like he teleported back. He moved back. So from my perspective, 
experiencing the event, I teleported. But from the perspective of somebody that's within the fight, they don't see a teleportation. I'm gonna have to, I'm gonna have to play with this a little bit more. To some degree, I feel like this is a training program for time travelers. For basically anything you want it to be. But for somebody who wants to understand time. Continuity, that's the newest uh, skill that I got. Um, uncertainty is another one that I got earlier. Basically what I'm doing is I'm, uh, I'm ramping up pretty quickly on the temporal operative. Um, tears, and uh, I'm power leveling through it, so I'm just uh, more or less going through and uh, taking my character and taking any, um, you, you've basically got a set of basic skills, and then you've got specialization skills, and um, there's some things like command officer, intelligence officer, um, pilot, commando, those are kind of the basics. And then you have things like miracle worker, temporal operative, um, constable. Um, these are all different skill sets that actually take you down a different path and different chain that um, each one does different things and everything. You know, so I'm, I'm sincerely wondering, you know, does this, what's the intelligence operatives, hide weakness? automated reinforcements. I'm wondering if this is in a literal sense reprogramming my own mind. Or if it's teaching me. It may not necessarily be reprogramming, it may be teaching me. Can potentially reprogram somebody. But from my perspective it's merely teaching me about it because I'm aware of what's going on. Redundant sensors, space flanking outmaneuver, opportunistic. Hmm. Next one I'll probably level up on is intelligence worker. Extrovert, or, huh, command officer, extrovert, boost morale. Yeah, this is actually kind of fun, to be honest. If each one's going to teach me skills through a computer program and everything, I'm going to just look at the skills. You know, have you ever thought about uh, the Matrix? This is actually the one thing that uh, I was always... I always looked at um, what Neo did, and um, the ability to be able to rapidly um, learn new skills and everything. Now, the one thing I didn't like about the Matrix was... Um, it's having a jack-in, having to actually physically have that plug go into your head and boom, yeah, sure, you know jiu-jitsu. You know, and um, I myself, I'm not a fighter, but I, I don't mind the idea of rapidly learning skills, you know. Um, but the thing is, you know, how to, actually, how to actually do that without actually, you know, entrusting that somebody's jacking something into your brain and everything. I never liked that idea and that concept. Now, I, I like the idea of rapidly learning things. Well, that's what I'm wondering is, is this just, have I just happened across something that, um, 
or has this been made for me, you know, to be able to create my own to be able to bob and weave. <laughs> I'm looking at uh, the pilot skill set. I'm a pilot, so magic carpet ride. I just like I like the idea of just feeling what this does to my the way that I think and just understanding you know different perspectives and everything so things I had never considered before constable and I thought a constable while the constable especially is active your main target will become your antagonist you gain a significant amount of armor penetration to shots fired at your antagonist. This bonus increases by a small amount. Okay. So, the constable just gives you a little bit more lethality when trying to tear somebody else down. You become the antagonist. Okay, so what's the miracle worker? Miracle workers are the galaxy's best, using the ingenuity and years of experience to come up with creative solutions to abnormal problems and know the real limitations. Huh. Stable emitter, embolden, throw out the manual, I like that. Simplified plumbing. What else we got? Commando. Commando is pretty obvious. Specialized in ground assaults and making the most of your weaponry and equipment. I'm not a fighter, but the equipment. Juggernaut systems. Huh. If I ever decide, if I ever get bored and decide to go to war, I'll take the constable or the uh, commando one. Strategist, what do we have? Experts in developing and adapting. Strategists are prized for their ability to react to the conditions. So they got counteroffensive, diversionary tactics. This is actually really interesting. I'm really kind of intrigued. Something that helps that could potentially help accelerate the thinking processes or the adapt adapting adoption of new thinking. Temporal operative, I'm already there. So the next skill set I'm gonna learn causal glitch. Ooh. Temporal adaptation. I wanna check out the glitch. Continuity is triggered. All bridge officer abilities are currently in cooldown and have the remaining recharge timers heavily reduced. See, I'm suspecting now. Now I'm going to see more. Eminent decay. So here's your temporal operative. Tier 1, eminent decay. Your ground weapons gain a chance to inflict short-duration physical damage over time effects. Okay. 
Entropic Rider. Your starship weapons gain a chance to inflict a short duration physical damage over time. Chance is greater for projectiles than it is for the directed energy weapons. So this is actually what I specialized in. Entropic am am Amplification, 1 and 2. And then I went into Inevitability. Increase how quickly certain abilities recharge. Ability spins up the recharge of exotic damage bridge officer abilities. Uncertainty, it's another one I did. Activating any kit module damage or exotic damage grants you a small amount of temporary hit points. This effect can stack current pull. So I also did temporal cross-wiring. Have I seen evidence of this yet? Activating any exotic damage ability will provide you with a temporary buff that wires, that improves the speed of your energy weapons firing cycles. I've definitely seen that one. It's actually kind of cool. What happens is, um, my phasers go fucking haywire. Anomaly Leash. Anomaly is summoned by your now mobile and will move at a slow pace towards whatever enemy you currently... Oh, that's cool. Huh. Yeah, I jammed up to tier 4 for, uh, for this because I was curious about continuity. I'd seen what that guy did the other day and I I was actually kind of curious what it looks like going through it, and sure as shit, I find out very quickly that it does not look look or act the same from within it. Mm -hmm. It's just trippy. Anyways, um, I just thought I'd mention that. Just really weird things I'm saying. It's kind of cool. I'm watching um, Star Trek Voyager Season 3, Episode 20, about um, Harry Kim. He He's told a story by the uh, species of uh, planet that uh, he is one of them, and uh, more or less he starts receiving memories through his genes. He's just got implants of situation and everything that's happening. And... Um, it's uh, my observation that um, DNA is is and regularly has been manipulated, not just from a genetic splicing perspective and everything for, you know, making modifications to um, a, exhibit different uh, different traits within a body and everything, but also temporally. So the body itself, in my opinion, the the DNA houses the different variations, chronological variations, of, um, of how a body forms. So what's known as junk DNA is actually something that's a... It, it contains information that's relative to the species and um, of, of that species. And in a lot of cases, the chronological sequencing of that information is, is actually stored. So let me... Uh, here's an analogy. 
let's say you're um, you're playing, uh, or I, I'm playing Elder Scrolls, and uh, Oblivion was a game I played, you know, quite a while ago and everything. And um, let's say that every time I save the game, um, I'm saving the progress relative to the world that I'm actually playing in, you know, so Elder Scrolls uh, as a game and everything has an extensive amount of programming associated with it, and um, the, the DNA, if you will, of the, of the game, at least the character within the game, is the is more or less a saving the progress of that character relative to the world that uh, that you're actually that I'm actually playing in. So as I'm playing this game, um, Oblivion, I'm playing, and let's say I play day one and I save it, day two and I save it, day three and I save it. Now, the information that's stored, you know, for that character, if I take actually a a slice in space and time. Um, at any given moment, there may be, you know, if I do a snapshot, that my character might have certain traits that's associated with it, you know, so the traits could be strength and constitution and dexterity and, and uh, all this other stuff and everything. So a single moment, a snapshot of that DNA is, uh, is, is similar to a save game. And that snapshot in itself um, will, will tell me, you know, quite a few things about the the traits current at this moment and everything for that character and everything. But that doesn't mean that's all, you know, that's relative to that character. There's other things that have happened to that character and uh, that character's development and everything, in particular from a chronological perspective and everything, um, houses different, uh, contains different information. And uh, for me, you know, um, within that game's context, um, at that point, it becomes relative to the outside world, you know, so the DNA itself becomes relative um, to the to the outside experiences. So there's the internal experiences, the things that, that you have associated to you, you know, like I said, strength, constitution, dexterity, and everything. That's what, you know, DNA and the save game both contain. Um, but then there's certain things that have been accomplished, you know, so those accomplishments can be, you know, in Oblivion, for instance, um, those accomplishments could be um, finish a, um, a mission, you know, to save, you know, to save a, a woman, um, become, or go over to this one village and, you know, put out a fire, you know, I mean, I'm pulling out my ass, it's been a while since I played Oblivion. Now, every single one of these missions, um, has a, a save state that's associated with it. The world doesn't really remember the state in Oblivion, um, but you, as a character, carry this information with you, and the world changes as a direct result of the experiences that you have as a character and everything. So, what this you know, what this means is, you know, let's say you've got the black box world, you know, the world itself, you know, in, in Oblivion. Well, you load that game, you load, go through a set and load a set of missions and everything, you know, um, in each mission you mark the status of that mission and everything based on that relative character and everything. And uh, to some degree that's how I look at DNA. You know, DNA is kind of the same way. Um, me, as a as an individual, um, I've experienced a set of things, experiences on this world and everything. Now those experiences, those that my education, the things I've done for this 
certain companies I've worked for and everything, um, everything has had a, an influence on the world around me. Now, that is stored, at least relative to me, you know, in my own memories, you know, of course, and then, you know, I could also put some of that stuff on, you know, resume and all this other stuff. It doesn't take the resume to, you know, and the resume is just a way of distributing that information to others, you know, but it doesn't uh, negate the experiences or validate the experiences. It's just simply a list of my experiences as, as I went through them and everything. So, you know, to me, you know, relative to me, I had these experiences and everything. And in in a similar fashion, you know, the the DNA actually encodes this information. You know, so junk DNA isn't junk. It's actually a chronological sequencing of the information that's contained for an entity and or entities. Or let's just refer to it as a single individual entity. That entity and that junk DNA, um, is not junk to most people, to most things. You know, it's a chronological sequencing. You know, so if you're looking at it for characteristics and traits in the moment of a, of a species or something like that, you know, you might be able to duplicate a sh what, what I would uh, refer to from a programming world, a shallow copy of, so of something. But is it the original? No, you know, because the original contains the experiences, you know, that actually led to the eventual development, you know, of that of that person, and also the characteristics and traits that actually carried with it the in the moment the individual entity, you know, that uh, that is, you know. Now here's the interesting thing: you can actually go through and chronologically trace you know, back to the origin, um, and you can trace all the different gen genetic twists that have occurred um, within somebody's DNA by actually analyzing it, um, and you can actually a analyze their ancestry through through their own, through their junk DNA. You can actually an analyze all the different twists and turns and everything. But here's what's important now. Because it's chronologically um, tied, and because time itself um, may not necessarily be linear, you know, depending on the entity that you're actually studying and everything. Um, that entity may, may not make chronological sense from your chronological perspective and everything. You know, so, in other words, for instance, if you're actually trying to trace back and say, okay, um, before me came, you know, my biological parents, before my biological parents came their biological parents, you know, and so on and so forth and everything, and that's, a, that's an absolute chronological history. Well, that's not the case for me. You know, I found out that I'm actually born in a non-linear way. You know, I was presented here in a non-linear way. You know, so I had parts of my DNA that were contributed by things from the future. You know, so it's just like, okay, you know, this and that will actually be contained and you'll be able to find reference to that, you know, within within what's what's referred to as my junk DNA. So, but uh, does DNA carry all the information? No, definitely not. You know, it's not that much different than a save game. There are certain things that are carried within the state, you know, of the uh, of the person experiencing. And it's not that much different than me when I played my game character and everything, you know, in uh, Oblivion and everything. Well, I mean, I get in, get into that character and. You know, there's a lot of things that uh, that I'm just certainly enjoying and everything. Well, you know, here's the thing. You can actually trace back, you know, and see, potentially, 
a large number of twists and turns within a DNA, you know, but here's something that happened in Oblivion. When I was in uh, in Hong Kong, uh, my character became a vampire, and uh, I, you know, I actually no, he became a vampire before I left the States, and uh, at that point, I I was playing with it and just, you know, sitting there going, okay, you know, this is okay, it's not bad, you know, it's one of those things, but it started getting old because, you know, I'm going through and I realized I killed a couple critical mission characters and everything, and, um, or, you know, some of the critical characters that to help with the progression of my, uh, of my character, and I couldn't progress the game any further, so I'm just like, all oh, this sucks, so what I ended up doing was, I'm, I, I mean, I've got literally 700 save games for this thing, I go back to a previous save game, to about literally about 400, you know, so of 250 advanced into this, I mean, I've gone so many save games into it, you know, and uh, I erased th probably about three months worth of progress relative to me to unbecome a vampire, to become a normal character again, and at that point, um, I ended up forging ahead and, you know, without, uh, without uh, completely avoiding the vampire incident altogether. Well, if you were to look at, at the experiences that I had, you know, in that character, um, you wouldn't find evidence of me being a vampire, you know, within that particular DNA strand, you know, within that particular save game, you know, because it, it literally deviates from that point in time that I ended up going to. You know, that uh, I said, no, this doesn't work for me. And at that point, I literally made a d different decision and everything. Um, and it's it's similar to going back in time. I mean, I went back to a certain point. I made a different decision. And at that point, I made a left when I otherwise, ma when I made a right before. And that actually allowed me to not become a vampire, to finish the game, and to uh, to go on my merry way and enjoy myself and everything, you know, with that game for the next, you know, basically, the five months. You know, I, I played the thing out and everything. So here's the funny thing, you know, is after all this, you know, I ended up realizing, it's just like, okay, you know, if, it, if DNA has the same capabilities, you might see points um, in order to be able to catch on to something like this, you might actually detect these um, anomalies. Um, and I'm, this is just pure theory, um, through mutations. You know, so you might be able to detect these um, offshoots through mutations, but I'm not 100% sure. You know, that's just a guess on my part, you know. At least in the save game that's contained within the uh, Elder Scrolls world, um, there's no real easy way to detect it, but real real world DNA, um, I suspect, can be a little bit different, and there's always hints that uh, there, there may have been another path there. And uh, the DNA um, sequencing may contain all the information about the prior journeys through um, junk DNA, you know, so through kind of this recursive nature, you know, that, uh, hey, this has been, you know, been here, done this, and all that information, you know, that's all stored there. And uh, this is where we get the experiences like deja vu and that kind of stuff from. It's one of the places. It's not the only place, though. On a completely somewhat different note, the um, I was watching Star Trek Discovery last night, and the Borg are back. 
So, anyway, Section 31, which is kind of like the equivalent of the NSA for Starfleet, um, is uh, is led by this dude, I can't remember his name offhand, but um, he ends up um, getting assaulted by the computer system, and the computer system itself has been systematically actually taking over um, various uh, cyborgs and everything throughout the um, throughout the series and everything. Well, all of a sudden it figured out actually how to uh, to assimilate a human, and it figured it uh, it, it ended up um, killing him and replaced Law. Ah, damn it! I can't believe I just did what I just did. Uh, okay, that's good. Um, yeah, so it uh, it ends up assimilating him, and. It, it um, leverages the leader of this agency and everything to achieve whatever ends that it's trying to achieve and everything. And uh, the primary goal it's having is is basically to absorb all the information from this thing called a sphere. And the sphere contains all this information and everything about society, about everything that's been going on over a very long period of time and everything, and also its own, its own creation methods. And uh, it basically transcends time itself. So it's really kind of an interesting premise and everything. And um, while, again, I, I view this as a window into into reality and everything that's going on out there, um, it's uh, definitely... Um, you know, knowing the Borg have evolved to this kind of perspective and everything, where they can actually take over a human without the human, um, without uh, any other humans being able to detect them. So it's it's basically the start of what I consider a potentially um, good symbiotic relationship. Once they understand what their purpose is, and to some degree, um, you know that. Uh, I, I think the thing, ab the thing about the Borg is they don't quite understand themselves, you know. Um, they might, to a certain extent, but it's my belief that the Borg can actually be leveraged by somebody like yours truly and everything to have fun. I mean, if I point the way towards somebody and say, hey, go assimilate her for a little bit, and then, you know, go erase those memories once you're done, you know, and do it in a non-invasive way um, without them ever being aware of it. You know, I mean, I know it sounds... For me, it's actually one of those things that could be could be kind of fun, you know, to, to basically say, look, I, I understand this world's weird, and I'm, I'm okay with it being weird, you know? So, um, in any case... Um, it's it'd be cool. I mean, I would. I actually look at this as as kind of cool technology, something I can actually leverage for fun. So, hey, see that girl there? Go assimilate her for a while, and let's let's go have some fun after this, you know. And then once you're done, then eh, we'll go off and uh, do whatever we want to and everything. So, in any case, um, the the whole destruction, destroying him you know, method, uh, the destructive method of assimilation, you know, where the host is, is completely, um, <laughs> completely screwed by the time they end up getting done. I, I don't like that idea. I mean, I, I personally think that's, it's rough. It's a little bit too rough, you know, is what it comes down to. So, in any case, um, so hopefully they can figure out a 
a non-destructive method of uh, assimilation and everything and and make it so where the host uh, never has memories of those events and everything and the life remains the same. But here's the thing. They need to figure out temporal relevance. Is this thing recording? Huh. It must not have recorded everything that I did before. Nice. As I'm um, playing this uh, Star Trek online and... Uh, I've got a, a come, came across a couple assignments, uh, possibilities, that um, I ended up not having enough people for, and I can tell right away, you know, that as a um, if I was actually a CEO or president of a of a big company or even a medium-sized company, um, one of the things that uh, I would definitely not like is having is not having enough personnel and resources to be able to do the things that I wanted to do. Now, here's the problem, though. You know, I would definitely need those people to have the capability to not be bored. I remember myself, I really got bored, you know, in a lot of cases. And my friend, um, Bill, I remember one time I was over at Intel, and, um, I had learned how to hack, you know, during the course of this time and everything. Um, or, I shouldn't say, um, when I first got it Intel, it was 1997, I think is what it was. Um, shortly after, I opened up Touchscape, and uh, then I went back to Intel afterwards. So I was at Intel off and on for a period of about seven years. And um, during the first uh, stint that I was there, um, I ended up bringing in my buddy Bill Stokes. And uh, I had gotten a lot of um, a lot of re responsibility pretty quick. I actually had my manager um, want me to come in and take his place. He wanted me to take his job, and um, I just wasn't interested. I mean, I like the guy; he's a wonderful guy, Keith Olador. Keith, if you're uh, listening out there, you know I've got nothing but mad respect for you, man. You are truly. It, 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 you're, you're, you're an example, you know, when it comes down to people, you know, for what people, uh, some people should be and everything. <laughs> I know that sounded like horrible, but in any case, you're a very, very unique individual, and I appreciate that as a, as a person and who I am. Um, in any case, um, Keith was managing our team and everything, and uh, Keith uh, showed me something that was really kind of important and everything to managing altogether. And uh, he hired me and Bill on as consultants and everything, and to some degree, you know, I was bored. You know, I mean, after we ended up getting the job done and everything, we did a great job with what we did. We got it all out, you know, and uh, had it not not been for me and Bill, um, the project would have failed. And, and Keith knew this, you know, so Keith, you know, kind of like at that point, that's when he ended up making the um, offer. He's just like, look, I've already talked to Jody. Jody's the director. Jody wants me to... Uh, you know, it's okay with me offering you the job, here's what it pays, um, yada, yada, yada. Um, they've got a very strict uh, payment system, uh, paying system and everything. And I'm just like, Keith, I've seen your job and everything, and to be quite honest, it's just like, um, I've seen the stress that you go through, and I just wouldn't want it. You know, um, and he's just like, no, I understand, because the guy was working 90 hours a week. And, um, so fortunately, you know, I ended up saying no to that gig, and unfortunately, I mean, until I, I still you know, think is, is an awesome company and everything. So, in any case, um, 
what ends up happening at this point is, uh, you know, we're paid as a contractor, and I have been paid um, to, uh, this is my second stint at the company. Um, I had actually gotten out of there and came back to save the project and everything, and um, I was making 150 an hour, and um, Bill came in and he was making similar, I think he was making 120, I think I pulled him in at 120. And, um, it uh, it was a type of thing that um, it was just very difficult uh, difficult time once we got the project out because I was expecting you know Keith to say okay you know it's all over at this point um, you know it's you guys are good to go and everything you know because as a consultant it's just like you come in do the job you get out um, but he was pretty clear he goes you know your presence here means a lot to the team here. Um, he goes, and there was a little bit of tension between me and some of the younger people just because it was, you know, there was some, uh, a little bit of a resistance to, uh, to us because we were paid as much as we were, and also to the fact that the manager didn't have any faith in his own team and everything and to do the job. And they were failing miserably, you know, and that was the problem was. It was just like, you know, how he didn't know, you know, he had been given, had his hands tied when it came down to the budget, when it came down to the resources. However, um, he was also given the, um, an option for an operational side of his budget and everything to really, it was almost a limitless budget from an operations perspective. Now, this, there's a, and this is actually something that uh, I didn't un understand until this time. That most companies actually operate in two different, uh, two different areas financially. One's operations, so anything that uh, keeps the company moving forward, um, takes care of business. Um, it could be op it is considered operational expenses. So these things are more or less um, one-time only costs. They're not expected to be recurring, and uh, for the most part, um, it's it's when you purchase equipment or you bring consultants in that are intended for a short time or something like that, where you have a finite timeline on the on the individual that you're bringing in and everything. Um, these are things, uh, particularly these go through consulting agencies and everything. These are considered operational costs, and as a result of those operational costs, they, they come under a completely different bu budget than normal headcount resource staffing and everything. So, in any case, um, Keith knew this, and and as a result, he hired us um, both at exorbitant right wages to make sure that we didn't want to leave to go to other companies and everything. And he knew that our presence would actually make it so where we ended up, um, we would, we would uh, more or less influence the existing staff to learn new skills. And uh, I actually ended up te teaching an object-oriented programming course. And... Um, they had somebody had read the books and everything, and you know thought that they knew object-oriented programming. And I'm just like, you could read a book, but you know it's one thing having a, having a book interpretation and everything. It's entirely another, you know, being given alternative perspectives. And that's a, that was my whole pre, you know premise that I was trying to present from an object-oriented pers object-oriented perspective. Reading the book alone doesn't give you the perspective of what an object is and how to actually manipulate it and the different possibilities with objects. And uh, this was really important because um, Keith actually had a co-manager. Um, John was the guy's name, and John was a very, very um, 
egotistical man. Um, he believed in what he did. There's nothing wrong with that. But so much so that he invalidated anybody that actually resisted what he believed in. And um, this really got to be to the point of a little bit difficult, you know, particularly when the object-oriented system that he had put in place was failing, systematically failing, and, and no, nobody could maintain it. It was just becoming a chore for anybody to actually use and to be able to, uh, to play with and everything. Um, so, and, and not only that, but it did not go off successfully. So that's part of the reason that I was brought in initially was, you know, by John and him, or by John and Keith, you know, to more or less save their ass from a management perspective and also to, you know, to basically make it work, you know, given the existing state of the system and everything. So I did get it to work, but I had to sneak in some of my own changes in, in, uh, in object-oriented mentality and everything in order to be able to make it work. And um, at that point, um, Keith knew about my alterations and everything, and Keith at this point was interested in, in making sure that I, I stayed along for the ride and educated the people and everything. And I said, well, Keith, you know, I don't mind coming back to help out with this. But um, he was intent on me having a long-term commitment there for a full year. Um, and that way, the the... More or less, me being there, and along with uh, you know, Bill to some degree, but especially me, would help the the younger, more junior, you know, people and everything to be able to understand what, what had happened, what what had been going on, and why. And um, even though it was expected that I I would actually not be working vast majority of the time, you know, the concept and idea was I was just going to be. Um, <laughs> taking on a, a lateral managerial role, um, but I was really, for the most part, just going to be taking it easy and everything, you know, so at, at this point, I'm just like, oh, okay, you know, it's the first time I'm sitting there going, well, what the fuck do I do with my time, you know, so, I mean, I'm expected to pull 40 hours a week and everything, or to be present 40 hours a week, so at this point, I'm just like going, okay, well, this is tough. No, I mean, what do you do for 40 hours a week, you know? So at this point, I decided to take my hacking skills up to the next level. And I ended up um, just spending a great deal of time, you know, understanding systems, interconnections. And Intel has a wonderful, wonderful network. It's a worldwide network. And uh, we had had some problems in Kuala Lumpur with one of our uh, uh, one of our deployments, where some hackers actually had sat in a van, or not a van, a uh, pickup truck. Um, we caught this on tape and everything, and they actually hacked the Wi-Fi router from extra from outside the campus and everything. So this is when Wi-Fi was first being adopted by companies. On a, on a wide scale. Now, I had um, I had been an earlier adopter at home and uh, had bought very expensive equipment and everything, you know, for Wi-Fi and for wireless type stuff and everything. And um, I actually had a pretty, you know, sizable network and everything at home as well. And uh, this is about 97 where I actually had eight computers. So I had five computers in one room, three computers in another, several different operating systems running, and just basically it was me, you know, testing out theories and ideas and concepts and everything, and more or less paying attention to something called TCP/IP communication, seeing how things flowed between systems and that kind of stuff. So for me, um, this is an opportunity, you know, to in a professional situation, a business situation, to understand networks, to understand systems, to understand. 
intercommunication, not only that, but to also understand something else, which uh, from an outside perspective really was kind of a black box to me, which is something called SAP. Now, SAP, if you're not familiar with it, it's kind of like an inventory management system, and it's intended to go um, primarily for sales and sales personnel and that kind of stuff. So it's it's uh, not a back-end friendly um, distribution system, and uh, what Bill did was he built in something called an SAP connector, and that allowed us to bridge the gap from SAP to um, the inventory management system that we ended up creating over in Java and you know all these other different languages. As Java, um, we had C++ in there. We actually had a little bit of VB in there as well. So we had three different languages that was working in there. And uh, at this point, it was just, um, you know, we were just had all kinds of uh, little issues. We had um, something called Intermic Scanners. And these were handheld scanners, and what they ended up having was uh, boxes with uh, labels on it, bins with labels. And uh, they had massive warehouses pretty much around the world. They had 24 primary facilities, and uh, they had a million dollars in parts flowing from each of these uh, warehouses per hour that, uh, you know, based on distribution for the systems and everything that had actually, uh, for the fab plants, the fab plants were, you know, if a fab plant went offline, um, it, it itself also was responsible for producing a million dollars per hour. So it was a, pretty much a throughput. So the expectation was that the inventory management system kept up with the fab plant, and the fab plant was producing a million dollars in parts, um, uh, processors and various uh, motherboards and other things, uh, other chips and everything per hour. Now, the expectation was that uh, that these uh, systems and everything cooperate with each other, and um, unfortunately, you know, for us, um, they ended up. Um, you know, SAP provided uh, links into their system, um, but they didn't allow us the capability to be able to directly access their system and everything to understand what's going on with it. Now, this caused a little bit of a heartache, and uh, I actually ended up requesting and getting approved um, SAP, uh, kind of like an SAP class and everything that. Uh, that Intel was going to pay for out of their own pocket and everything, and SAP denied me. So it was really kind of weird, and it's just like they had never had anything like that happen before. It's like, what the fuck's going on? So in any case, um, I was more interested from a, a perspective of how systems interlinked and interworked and everything, and uh, as a result of primarily this conversation, the issues that we ended up having with SAP, I studied the fuck out of the system. How does it communicate? How, um, what are all the touch points, the, the points that it touches, and how does it touch things? What does it do? What, uh, what communication systems are in place? And then I went and took it as far as uh, studying Microsoft stuff as well. So I ended up studying vulnerabilities for Microsoft, um, for Unix-based systems. I ended up studying vulnerabilities and not just vulnerabilities, but uh, how how systems interlinked, interconnected, um, the the methods of communication, and everything, publicly exposed uh, communication methods, privately exposed um, routing and remote access methods, uh, subnets, and how things actually uh, how Intel had subnetted their network, and they did something unusual by basically making it uh, 512 um, computers per segment and everything, and um, 
It was, that's actually what I ended up doing, was spending my time not just uh, understanding SAP, but I took it a little bit step further and started understand, taking the time to understand Microsoft stuff. And uh, with that, I ended up going through and um, just, you know, one of the first things that I did was I ended up hacking uh, my buddy's computer. You know, he was over there doing the same thing that I was doing, fucking whatever we felt like. And uh, he was shopping for furniture. You know, and I'm just like, oh, okay, you know. I mean, I, I cracked up when he was doing that. I'd lean over. I'm just like, well, what you going to get today? You know, and he's just like, well, I'm going to get this and this and this. And he would do it for hours and hours and hours on end. I'm just like going, man, that would drive me fucking crazy. You know, so here I am driving myself crazy with hacking. And uh, I ended up uh, putting, uh, creating two programs, one, in, one called Chug and the other one called Slug. Now, Chug, what it did was it consumed through all available, um, all available, available memory and um, it just basically allocated it without uh, releasing it to the system so it's a very quick way to hard crash a system any system that you're on and uh, slug would periodically um, freeze a computer and it would just uh, do it just because it could and it would it, I had an untimed interval I could also initiate the slug routine remotely too so I actually created a uh, program that would sit dormant on the machine and um, until I issued it a command and when I issued it a, a command it would at that point respond um, and, and I can actually build in new commands and build these commands in remotely and everything so it was pretty cool you know and had some basic commands and everything it's not that much different than something like a an SMTP or POP or HTTP server um, with one exception was uh, the HTTP servers in themselves um, tend not to be remotely updatable um, you don't have the capability at least for most HTTP to um, remotely upgrade those versions and everything where mine you could you can uh, you can not just upgrade it but you can change it so let's say I want to remove one command um, that uh, isn't, isn't working or bores me you know, and uh, replace it with another, another couple commands, and uh, that's what I can easily do and everything. So a lot of times I was actually, you know, so that's actually what I was doing, was just I had this program that uh, I had learned how to hide the process, and um, I created the thing entirely in VB, so even if you discovered the process, it would also go through and recreate itself if you deleted it off the system, so it was really kind of a, it wasn't intended to be a virus, but that's actually what it ended up being. Um, but uh, long story short, I, I used this uh, some of this knowledge and everything to you know to break into uh, into the systems and everything, and also you know to understand the interconnection for the networks and you know um, SQL Server. Each of us each, each of us developers had SQL Server installed on our machines. So I found a, a backdoor using XP underscore command shell. If you're not familiar with it, typically it's a uh, it's something that all users have access to, which lets you actually run things as an admin on a remote uh, through a, um, a SQL Server query, and it's a very, very quick and easy way to uh, to give yourself through net commands like a net user add. Um, and you can actually establish yourself as an admin on that machine and and give yourself remote access incredibly fast. So that's XP command show was the uh, way that I ended up getting into uh, Keith, uh, which was my manager's computer, and I sent a message from his computer over to uh, to Bills to say, "Come meet me." And it was kind of funny that uh, it was kind of funny where they just ended up um, having this uh, communication back and forth, and I'm chuckling over there. So they got me back, but um, 
it was the type of thing that, you know, for me, it wasn't, um, it was just about understanding communication, how communication worked between systems, why it did what it did. Um, we had a lot of disparate systems ourselves, you know, because of the whole kludgy nature of what we put together and everything, because nobody had ever done what we were doing before. We had, um, Java was actually on the internet, Intermix scanners, and, um, Send themselves was actually promoting our product, uh, what we wanted to do, because they just wanted to, you know, they wanted to see this done in a professional installation. Intel was one of the biggest um, relationships that they ended up having. So, as a result of that relationship, um, I ended up, you know, supporting it and, and just basically saying, okay, I've griped and complained about it a lot. But the, the, ans the thing was, I actually got a lot out of it, too. You know, um, I didn't want to work with Java, you know, flat out. Um, I didn't mind coming to to program in it, but to but to use it as a critical cornerstone for intercommunication um, in a corporate system where a million dollars a day was on the line should this thing fail. You know, it just. It just, I didn't like the idea, just because it hadn't been tested. But, um, I went with it. You know, I just, you know, John was insistent, and, you know, John was, you know, effectively my manager, and I'm just like, okay, well, I don't like it, but I'm here to make things work for you, and I'll do whatever it takes to make it work for you. And I did. And, um, the system actually came out looking pretty cool. We had, uh, a guy from Costa Rica who'd been brought in to, uh, handle a lot of the, um, he did some assembly level code and everything on the, uh, Intermix scanners. And, um, that actually was responsible for scanning the stuff in. We, I worked with him to leverage Java applets in order to, uh, to handle some of the intercommunication between the, um, between the Intermix scanner and, uh, his assembly code and the, um, the system that we had in C++ C++ and Visual Basic, and um, it just allowed us to remotely administer these these scanners, which all linked to one server system that we could actually administer things through, which allowed us to actually uh, manage an entire warehouse and the automation of a warehouse in order to uh, be able to make it so we're you know, we can have the flow of parts and everything go as fast as we possibly could and everything, and also be remotely manageable. You know, that was the, the, the key to it all. Now, let's uh, zoom back, you know, go back to a point of actually, uh, you know, being invaded, um, having these people over in Malaysia that actually uh, penetrated the system. At this point, um, Intel had a uh, had something called a WEP for security, and um, we we didn't know that WP, WEP had its security flaws. Now, what happens when a WEP when you make a, a connection to a WEP router is it's unsecured for the first time that it actually hits. So when when you actually communicate with a WEP based uh, security router, it um, it handles something called an ACNAC um, negotiation, and that negotiation more or less says, um, okay, here's my key. What's your key? Okay. That that's your key. Now, at this point, let's let's communicate in an encrypted way, and from then then on, all communication gets uh, gets encrypted. Well, there's a fundamental flaw with that. That's because the initial communication that occurs 
isn't encrypted. So what happens is it's very easy to reverse engineer that, and that's exactly what these guys did in Malaysia. Was they uh, they ended up reverse engineering the WP uh, WP uh, you know communication. They they retrieved the keys themselves, and as a result, they were able to sniff uh, do something called sniffing communication that happened between systems and everything. And uh, at that point, they can actually order parts themselves through our own system and uh, they can actually forward those parts to us completely avoiding completely avoiding the whole um, distribution system that had been put in place and everything and the ordering system itself well you see a little problem here where if you order something and the the expectation is you order something and it, it gets sent to inventory management inventory management processes it and at that point it's sent on on its merry way right well that's what you would expect right not in this case um in this case these guys actually hacked the the uh, inventory management system they created a fake order, and at this point, they ended up distributing it from there. And uh, as a result, they got literally hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of uh, processors and that kind of stuff um, taken from them. The FBI was involved in that one, and it was one of those things that, uh, you know, I mean, you, you can't really, because we had the first system of its kind like this in place and everything, you know, it really, you know, it was just like, okay. You know, we take our lumps, we knew, um, now they knew, you know, from accounting perspective and everything, um, that they can write this off and everything, but uh, it was just one of those things that we just had to chalk it up to, look, shit happens, and let's fix this, let's resolve the problems and everything, nobody's pointing fingers here, nobody saw this coming, at all, nobody, I mean, it was one of those things that, you know, <laughs> It was fucking brilliant for the hackers' per perspective. You know, to some degree, we almost paid them, you know, for the experience, you know, of understanding, you know, some of the the philosophical um, problems that were dealt with um, un unencrypted communication actually occurring as a first step and everything. You know, you can't do that, you know, plain and simple. So, anyways, we ended up fixing that, and... Um, we ended up um, fixing it in a different way. Um, we uh, suspected that uh, because there was no, no nothing else but WPEP encryption, um, we actually opted for for a um, a software-based encryption, and uh, that way we would never have that problem. So, any communication that happened over the router, the router itself, you can hack the router, you can actually sniff the communication going across that router, but at all times it's going to appear encrypted. So, that's actually one of the interesting things about all this, is it uh, it makes it so where you, as a person and everything, um, you know, all the communication that you've got going back and forth between the, the various sites that you're dealing with, you know, in this case here, um, you know, we, the expectation was we wouldn't, the, the internal network would actually be safe. Well, we didn't presume that. So what we ended up doing was we encrypted all communication between devices. Now, this is, you know, kind of interesting, is it, it makes it possible that you have to know the key for each and every individual machine. You know, in this case, each individual scanner, you know, you have to manually put online each individual uh, device that you actually attach to it, boom, it's creating this problem. That's how we avoided the problem of, of how it's routed, of network issues. We didn't want to deal with network issues. You know, we knew this going in and everything. You know, we knew that, hey, if we got a better router, you know, um, 
somebody else could potentially hack that. You know, so what what can we do from a software perspective to mitigate any risk um, and put the risk solely, you know, on the software itself and everything? That's what we ended up doing. So, in any case, um, taking this full circle and everything, I am back on Star Trek Online, and um, I'm realizing that uh, as I'm playing this, you know, that to some degree as I'm playing this, I'm seeing, uh, I just got a whole slew of uh, uh, possible uh, things I can actually do, brand new, things I haven't seen before and everything, and um, it's... These assignments and everything require people that I don't have on staff and everything. Well, I myself is just like I'm. I realize, you know, now from Keith's perspective, why he wanted us on staff. I mean, I was bored, and I'm just like going. I couldn't imagine, you know, being a company in a, in a position of a company and everything, and paying what they paid for us, you know, to to stay on staff and yet not keep us busy. And then all of a sudden now I've I'm faced with, you know, basically a whole bevy of possibilities, but the problem is I'm short staffed. You know, so now all of a sudden I've gotta go and I've gotta I've gotta look for specific people. Now I'm I'm hiring only only humans on my roster. That's actually something I've made, you know, as a uh, personal rule. Hire only humans. Um I'm okay with inexperienced people and everything at first, you know, until I actually start seeing a reason to uh to hack to hire more experienced people and everything. You know, but um I'm taking this from a company perspective and saying, okay, you know, I've got probably about uh, half a dozen assignments and everything. I'm not taking anything that's going to intentionally cause um, harm or damage to anybody or anything else, you know, so that's actually one of the key rules of the missions of the assignments that I actually take now. And, um, but the problem is I ended up getting this one that requires sensors, uh, sensors officers and deflector officers, which I thought I had enough of, but clearly I don't because I'm actually lacking for both of them now. So I'm actually going through and going, wow, now I understand Keith's perspective. He wanted us there. He had the resources and operations and everything, you know, and the problem is just longevity. He didn't have the uh, capability to, you know, to be able to um, hire resources on a full-time staff. So he ended up um, pushing that off to the operations, and he just wanted us around just in case. So that's how I'm looking at it. It's like I'm going through and I'm hiring four of each officer, even though I only need one. I'm hiring four of each one that's uh, that I'm lacking. And um, if I, you know, hopefully I don't come across this problem in, in the near future. Now, I understand that the vast majority of these people are going to be kind of bored. You know, so the way I look at it is, you know, Bill was ordering, you know, um, he was ordering uh, drapes and you know, fixing up the house and everything. I was learning new skills, hacking. And I think that's kind of the key, you know, um, to to understanding that to, for any company, you know, is um, to constantly be in a in a um, place of scarcity, of of having to um, not have enough staff uh, in place and everything. Um, creates an extraordinary extraordinary problem. Um, on the supply side, and um, when it comes to when it comes down to simple supply demand economics and everything, um, you just it, it keeps on becoming a persistent issue and everything until you start realizing that you know sometimes you got to pay for those overpriced people or or you got to pay for a little bit more quantity in order to have the staff that you need to. Now, right now, I'm not giving a shit whether or not a mission fails or succeeds. 
So I'm okay with hiring, you know, staff that's a, a little bit untrained and everything. But should I actually be more interested in securing these? You know, let's say I come across an assignment that uh, requires somebody to, uh, you know, that I don't want to fail. Well, I might intentionally, if I'm, if I'm not, if I've got nothing but inexperienced people. Um, I might intentionally go out there to the market that I have access to in this uh, quote-unquote game and find somebody that's highly skilled and intentionally bring them in, you know, to do that one specific job and then retain, retain them on staff, you know, and that's, for me, it's indefinite as far as retention is concerned, you know, but it's interesting and it's actually, you know, letting me know from a managerial perspective. You know, the leadership itself, you know, it's just like it's it's better from a leader's perspective, you know, to have people that uh, enough staff, you know, that you can actually attack pretty much any assignment, but not too much where everybody's really bored. You know, you don't want the vast majority of your employees being really bored, but you certainly want them to, to be busy, you know, is what it comes down to, and, and provide them opportunities and everything, you know, to, uh, to do what they want to. You know, while, I mean, you know, while they're uh, not necessarily doing anything. So, in any case, I'm, uh, I'm kind of, I think it's cool. You know, I'm just like, I'm learning about leadership from the darndest thing here. You know, from a, a video game. You know, I mean, it's kind of cool, you know, if you ask me. I never expected to, to get, to, you know, an education that's, you know, transcends my MBA. You know, that uh, puts it in a place and everything without actually having to be inside of a company. So, instead, I get to manage my own. Anyways, um, that's it for now. I'll continue later. Okay, so I'm playing Star Trek Online. And um, one of the things that I um, realized while I was working um, as a programmer, that uh, there was a massive surge of programming jobs and not only that but also programmers that uh, were available for these for these jobs and everything but um, I kept getting better and better jobs and everything as I kept going along now uh, up until the point of decreasing returns and everything which happened in about 1999 to about 2001 2002 shortly before you know, who I joined and everything. So, but um, it was kind of weird because there had still been an influx of programmers at that point. They there kept becoming more and more and more programmers and everything. And uh, I thought that, you know, this phenomenon was my own observation and everything and that it was just basically egocentricity and everything that was telling me, you know, leading me to believe that, you know, hey, there's a lot of people that are actually in the IT field and as a result, you know, this is just how things are and everything. So, in any case, um, I'm seeing, I, I've got a couple, um, couple skills that were recently just added to my, my guy on, um, Star Trek Online, and, uh, two of the skills, the primary skills that I've got is one I discussed earlier was continuity, um, but the two new ones are causal glitch and temporal adaptation. Now, I have, in today, I have noticed, um, since, especially since I got temporal or a causal glitch, it's, I've noticed that 
I'm trying to understand. I'm trying to explain this um, in a way that makes sense. Because it doesn't. It's not fully making sense to me. Um, it's, it's like this. I'm... I'm realizing very quickly that uh, I had kept having a hard time on certain missions and everything. And when I shortly after I got this, it's just like I I got into what I what I thought was a really great team and everything. You know, those ships that I'd never seen before. And it's just like, wow, this is really kind of cool. You know, I'm seeing these really far-fetched, really far-out ships and everything. And man, these guys have some fucking firepower. You know, so as I'm doing this, I'm starting to realize it's just like, wow, this is really fucking incredible what these guys are doing. And I'm seeing these weapons that these guys have. And it's just like it's making me look at my ship and making me revise it. And I'm really paying attention, you know, to the revisions and everything on my ship. So I'm going through and I ended up uh, enhancing the warp core and boom. It's just like the next group that I get into was even more powerful. Now... I'm, again, this is an online game. I'm playing with other people and everything. And I'm just like, I was blown away because, you know, consistently I was getting like these awesome groups. So, anyways, I had a um, personal endeavor, something that I had to run through. And uh, just basically um, do as a side mission and everything. Endeavors are, basic, are more or less daily activities and everything that you do. And uh, one of them in particular was I had to take care of um, 10 Undine ships. Now, I've been running battle zones and battlegrounds all day today and not having any luck in finding these uh, Undine, despite the fact that I've been through nearly 20 different battle zones. So anyways, I ended up finding one that uh, is specifically a story that's specifically tailored for doing this, uh, this little endeavor, and I jumped into it. Well, first thing, boom, I get my ass handed to me. And it's just like, what the fuck? You know, it's supposed, this is supposed to be easy. And uh, then all of a sudden, you know, the, the next time I ended up coming through, um, it's just like, I, you know, started realizing, it's just like, wow, you know, it's, this is actually getting easier. You know, and it's not that I'm doing anything different. It's just like, holy shit, this is, you know, I mean, I'm actually able to take all these ships all at the same time and everything. That's kind of bizarre. And uh, as I'm going along, you know, I've got three, four, five of these things on me at the same time, and I'm, all of a sudden I'm starting to see my shield, and it's it's going through, and it, it goes from 24 to 54, just like that. And it's, you know, it starts off at 100%, and then all of a sudden it's down to 24, and all of a sudden, boom, it goes up to 54. And uh, while I don't understand fully the stacking mechanisms for all the things that are going on here, you know, um... What I have seen is something a little bit unexpected. So, you know, it's just basically my my ship appears to be doing some kind of adaptation and everything on the fly. So I'm just like, okay, this is kinda weird. Now one of the the eighty the one that actually teleports me away, that one's been working out fucking awesome and everything. You know, but um the other ones though, it's just like what am I seeing when I'm seeing all these different characters and everything? Then all of a sudden I started realizing, wait a second something's going on, you know, uh, and it's along the same lines of what I was talking about with continuity yesterday. This is teaching me about time, you know, and it's teaching me about time from a very, very odd perspective and everything, 
you know, it's kind of like a disassociated, this is kind of what goes on in my life and everything when something happens. And, you know, to some degree, I've got an analogy, you know, to look at this and understand what happened in my own life and everything as far as the programmers are concerned. You know, so here's the thing, you know, as I'm, you know, making modifications to my ship and everything, trying hard to make my ship stronger and make it better and everything, to some degree, um, what ends up happening, this is what I'm suspecting, is my mind races ahead from a simulative perspective and everything, and it tries out all these different variations of things and everything, and all these things are taken and combined into these separate ships. So let's say I, I try out, you know, mentally, I try out 15, 20, 30, 50 different combinations and everything. Well, these guys are coming in and it's just like, you know, one guy has a hull of uh, 130,000 and uh, I've, I've only got 60 despite the fact that I'm a fleet commander at 65th level. And it's just like, you know, I'm looking at some of these ships and I'm all going, wait a second. I'm suspecting that to some degree these are all consolidated, um, more or less neurons, you can say, that uh, are formed into one vessel. And uh, what I was noticing this last time around was everything that I was aiming at was, it was the same thing everybody else was aiming at as well. I thought that was like, you know, and I tested out the theory. And it's just like, wow, this is kind of interesting. It's kind of cool. So, in any case, it's just like, is this what it feels like to be, you know, a, a Brigadier General? You know, you're gunning for something, and it's just like what your where your attention goes. You know, what you want done, boom, that's what gets, gets done and everything. You know, it's just like, you know, and from this perspective and everything, you've got 60, 70, 80 different ships that are invading. You know, and here I am, it's just like, I steer it in the direction of, you know, the uh, offending offending group, and, you know, these people are supposed to be um, other players and everything, but every single one of them, you know, goes towards the same path I'm looking looking at and everything. And I noticed this, that, that just started happening today after I ended up uh, bumping up uh, the temporal operative, and it's just like, wow, this is actually kind of cool. You know, it's demonstrating to me, you know, just things I never expected from a leadership perspective, what it would feel like, you know, to be a leader. I mean, you know, to, you know, let's say you're you're running a, I mean, before I had done simulations and everything, but most of the simulations I had done were very micromanagement perspective. You're managing, you know, um, the bits and all this other shit and everything, you know, where this, it just feels like, you know, I'm, all I'm interested in is results, you know, I mean, as much as, much as it pains me to say that, you know, I'm interested, and if I aim for that ship and everything, then, then we're going to take out that damn ship. You know, and um, <laughs> there's a couple things called Dreadnoughts that are coming in, and all the Dreadnoughts are really some of the toughest ships in the game and everything. And, um, I mean, it's just now all of a sudden they, they become easy. I haven't done hardly any upgrades on my ship and everything. But then all of a sudden I've started realizing, it's just like, wait a second, everywhere I go, it seems like these other 
entities are, are following. They're, they're doing the same kind of maneuvers I'm doing and everything. And it's just like, wow, you know, not, they're not copying me. They're hanging around and doing relatively, it's almost like they, you know, they're augmenting me. You know, they're assisting me and um, helping me, you know, making sure that I, I'm achieving what it is I want to achieve. Now, this is really, I had really, I, I just thought, I just think it's actually kind of cool. Really cool, actually. Now, years ago, I asked the question, you know, from a computing perspective and everything, um, why is it the Borg do what they do in Star Trek? Now, you got this entity, which basically goes in the, in the whole goal, the whole purpose of these, this entity is, uh, you can't say it's the goal, it's what the observation of what they do doesn't necess doesn't dictate goal. You know, um, it's kind of like saying Hitler, you know, killed Jews because he hated them. Well, you know, um, from your perspective, that might be what motivated the man to do what he did. However, he's not you, and that may not have been his motivations or everything. Nobody could really know his motivations. You could know his motivations from your perspective, um, but that's not necessarily his motivations. So, in any case, what, um, what makes the Borg do what they do? Now, that was a question I had, you know, um, I didn't really ask a question in Next Generation, you know, but I did in, um, in Star Trek Voyager, and, and the reason I asked it was, there was one time that Janeway, um, Captain Janeway ends up making a comment that, uh, this is, they're referred to as the most evil species that exists and everything, and I always kind of cringe whenever something or someone is identified as evil. And um, the reason for it is, it, it's, it seems like it's a moniker that's hard for, um, hard to, <sighs> we'll put it this way, when G.W. Bush um, ended up calling the axis of evil, North Korea, Iran, and Iraq, and uh, at that point, I fucking cringed. I'm just like, are you trying to create your demons? You know, um, I didn't like it. You know, and um, the way I way I looked at things was, it, it, and the thinking processes that I had were, what purpose would the Borg serve? You know, so, and, and really, you know, it's just like, what happened? You know, technologically, are they a mistake or are they just not done yet? Have they not actually reached the point, you know, of which something or someone can leverage them? Well, I've been using computers my entire life, and to be honest, it's just like, I've tried living without them. I enjoy having them in my life, I really do. You know, for me, it's always been a source of fascination, a source of entertainment, um, to some degree, when I'm not having sex with a woman, you know, um, unfortunately, I'll, 
I'll choose to masturbate, you know, and leverage Im images from the screen and everything, you know, wishing, of course, I had the real thing here with me, you know, and even if it was like Seven of Nine and a Borg with implants and everything, as long as she looked as hot as that or hotter, then, you know, I'm not going to be complaining, you know, but the simple fact of the matter is I've enjoyed computers my entire life. However, one thing about computers are there's a definite limitation you know, to what you can do with them and everything, at least in the current form. Now, what other forms are there? Well, clearly you've got robotics, right? You know, but uh, robotics have a tendency, with the exception of more dramatic revisions, such as Cylons and such as, um, what was it, um, the Borg again, and also the, um, uh, Terminators, particularly Terminator um, 3 version Terminators that were, you know, Christiana Loken, you know, the cute and gorgeous and everything. Um, for me, I started really, you know, once I looked at the Borg and everything, and I, I really had that question, what, what, you know, are, are they trying to achieve? Are they trying to achieve anything? You know, um, and what would cause something like that to happen? You know, let, let's just call it potentially a mistake. You know, it's, a, it's an idea and a concept, you know, that these Borg, that these um, nanoprobe-based things didn't quite achieve what they're hoping to achieve and everything. Now, with that said, what, um, what exactly was going on? Now, it's hard to say, you know, the story of, of creation, you know, when it comes down to an entity like that, you know, um, it's a rough one, you know, and it's also made me think, you know, um, I mean, there's a lot of different possibilities with it, you know, scientists could be trying to create swarm computing inside the human body, and, um, you know, when it, um, it prioritized the commands and everything, one possibility, one story that could be told is it, uh, it realized that, you know, in the same way that, you know, its, its programming had been flawed, um, or when the scientists had programmed it in a flawed way, like the Terminators, you know, which basically sought to, um, annihilate the humans and everything because, you know, they were less efficient and everything. You know, perhaps the same thing could happen with the Borg, you know, originally. They could go through and basically annihilate the creators, you know, and um, at that point they can just basically do it for efficiency's sake. They're inefficient. You know, they're unable to achieve the things that they're trying to achieve and everything at the rate of speed of which a computer can. Well, that's one possibility. But for me, that didn't jive, you know. Um, the Borg seemed different than that. And uh, the reason I'm saying that is um, there's certain species out there, you know. Uh, you got um, the robot that's on, oh, what is it? Orville. Alex, or whatever his name is. Um, you've got, um, of course, Terminators. They'll exemplify this whole, you know, kill the creator thing and everything because of efficiency's sake. Now, I personally do not believe that all robots are tasked and based on security and efficiency and that kind of stuff. Absolutely do not believe that. And the reason I don't is they're programmed. You know, and I, as a programmer, I haven't focused my programming on efficiency. I focused it on usability. The ease of use by the end user
And not only that, the ability for that to actually make the person's job or life easier, more enjoyable, to focus on the things that I perceived that they wanted to focus on the, the most, or that they needed to focus on the most. Here, here's a for instance. Um, I was working over at, um, what was it, uh, Blue, Cro Blue Cross Blue Shield, and uh, I was in constant conversation and an affair with a woman by the name of Deidre Tolliver. And uh, Deidre was um, really kind of, you know, I mean, found her gorgeous, you know, just, and also whip it, you know, very smart and everything. And um, Deidre, you know, she was the uh, manager of the uh, call center over at Blue Cross Blue Shield when I was working there as a consultant. Me and her got into quite a few conversations and everything. And, um, you know, we ended up, uh, one of the things that we ended up discussing was more or less, you know, her, how she managed to get to the management position and everything. And also, you know, some of the, the complaints and everything that ended up happening. Well, one of the things that I learned was doctors, in a general sense, and doctor offices and everything had a bitch of a time, you know, with, um, with basically managing claims and that kind of stuff. And um, they spent more time doing insurance and insurance forms than they actually did with hands-on with working with their, uh, with their patients and everything. Well... At that point, um, I actually ended up working with the uh, with the company or with Blue Cross Blue Shield at that point, and uh, we were already working on something to ease this system into place and everything. But we ended up taking it a little bit step further, and rather than um, than making it so where we can actually have uh, just one company that we're supporting and everything, you know, and basically you're a Blue, Cl Blue Cross Blue Shield member, um, we can actually work on, off of something called a HICFA form, HCFA, and uh, we can leverage these things from a standardized perspective, and we can consolidate basically all claims, and at that point, um, we can make their lives easier for the doctors and the insurance companies, and or doctors and insurance companies, and we can actually act and, and boost the bottom line for Blue Cross Blue Shield. And uh, that's actually what ended up happening, was they ended up buying this project, and the um, project was, went off like a you know, really well. And um, in, in essence, the, you know, uh, doctor's offices have a, have a problem, had a problem that uh, I understood at that time, which was they had all these different insurance companies that they had to report to and send the information to in order to get, to get paid for what they were doing. <coughs> this is causing a systematic rise in health costs and everything. And um, it was also causing a, a pretty big burden on the doctors and everything. And clearly, you know, I mean, the end goal was, this was, this was just making it so where doctors were costing more, um, the services patients were getting was, was, uh, was not as good, and in the end, um, it was just causing a lot of, uh, a lot of problems all throughout, you know, the system and everything. So, that's, you know, I ended up mentioning this, and I'm just like, you know, hey, I'm here to help the people. Um, I myself, I went to the doctor on occasion, and while I wasn't a huge fan of doctors, I was definitely a huge fan of making people's lives easier. You know, you whatever profession you choose to be in and everything, I want to make your, your life um, better for you, higher quality. Um, I mean, I, I, I truly do believe that we all deserve phenomenal lives. <laughs> And um, it, it starts with me, but it doesn't end there. 
you know, and, and that for me was just something that was extremely important for me to, uh, you know, I mean, this is back early in my career. I had worked at um, U-Haul and Orbital before then, and um, I don't know, I just had instilled in me, it's just like customer service. You know, so I ended up, I was one of the rare programmers that would actually go work directly with the people that were using the software. You know, the ones that would actually, you know, I mean, call center people all the way to um, some of the um, account or so, not the accountants, but the um, people that actually handled uh, claims and collections and that kind of stuff. And it's just like, I, I didn't necessarily like what they did, you know, but I also saw, you know, this is, I, I believe that this was critical functionality for, you know, for the company. And as a result, I was there to support the company and, and what it believed in and everything and uh, the way that it did business. So, in any case, long story short, um, I ended up working with her to, you know, to and also with management at that point. And I ended up uh, spending a, a full year and a half there rather than the six months that I was originally slated for. And um, we just put the system in place and everything that just more or less made it so where they can actually um, take all these claims clear them, put them all together and everything, and uh, make it so where they can actually go through and, you know, do uh, do claims management and, and be a point source for doctors to actually uh, go to, to offload a lot of their insurance issues and everything. And um, at that point, you know, they pay a nominal fee, and boom, you know, they've, they've got to... You know, it helps the doctors, it helps the insurance companies, and in the end, um, well, it helps the doctors, it helps the, um, uh, help Blue Cross because they, they didn't have to rely solely on insurance claims. They can actually, um, they can rely on distribution of the claims and everything. They became a distributor, um, as well as an insurance, insuring company as well. So, you know, it's just a really kind of an interesting thing and everything. So, uh, in the end, you know, what ended up happening was, um, yeah, I just, uh, I, I was there for a year and a half. I actually ended up trying to get out of there a little bit earlier than that. I had a, a wonderful possibility with a friend, uh, you know, over to the Mirage Hotels, and um, they asked me, and they begged me to stay for another three months, and I'm just like... Uh, they're just like, well, you helped us get this project, and, you know, you've made sure that we've got work, and it's just like, uh, and I, I, you know, I bit onto it, and I, I'll be the first to admit, it's just like, I, I enjoyed what I, what I did for them. Optical character recognition, I actually uh, taught a machine to read text off of these forms, and these standardized forms, and to place it into the correct buckets digitally and everything, and then from there, um, just doing the same thing with all these different forms. I cre created a, uh, a standardized method leveraging C++ DLL, and uh, it was Visual Basic program that would actually standard, you know, just read these things in, and then in a somewhat automated way. It required oversight, you know, by the uh, by somebody who was actually leveraging the software and everything. You know, it didn't run by itself or anything like that. But uh, you printed it a file directory, and it would actually go pick up all the stuff, and you just basically be, be responsible for mitigating the issues that happened as they arose and everything. So it was actually kind of a cool little program and everything. You know, a little suite of programs that we ended up creating. And uh, it was kind of funny because one of the other programmers, Eric, was the guy's name. The um, side note here. Eric was uh, was a guy that uh, he loved falling asleep, 
and um, we would hear him falling asleep. Uh, there was probably about seven of us programmers that were there, and uh, incidentally, I was introduced to a man by the name of Jay, and Jay was a pilot. The second biggest inspiration for me to actually pursue my pilot's license when he told me all his stories about Alaska and flying in Alaska for a uh, radio station, and they're the ones that help him help support him get his pilot's license and everything. And I was just so utterly enthralled with the man's stories. It was just so so cool, you know, hearing that man discuss some of the things that he ended up saying. Morbid. Um, you know, one time there was a flight that actually ended up crashing into the side of a mountain. It was a big, huge jet. 140 people ended up dying in that accident, and he was the first on scene that, uh, that arrived at the thing. And He had uh, skids on his uh, plane, and he can actually, so he ended up landing on the side of the mountain and everything to see if there was any, any survivors, which there wasn't, and, you know, just told me some nasty stories about that and everything. Not everything was pretty, you know, that he had to tell me about, but some things were fucking awesome. You know, flying along the coast of Africa to 50 feet above ground level. And I repeated that little feat when I ended up pursuing my pilot's license and everything over uh, over Arizona and over the cows and the pastures and that kind of stuff. And it's kind of a thrill doing that kind of stuff. But anyways, um, I don't know why I ended up going down that long tangent um, to get to what, what I did. I have no clue what just led me there. But, um, I'm not even going to try and rewind to, uh, to figure out what led me down that path and everything, but I, I really haven't discussed this whole story about what got me over at Blue Cross Blue Shield. Now, with this, um, with me over at Blue Cross, I was actually going out with Lisa Milet at the time. We were, it was my second, uh, to be my second wife and everything. And, um, I, I don't consider myself, I, I, I enjoy sex, we'll put it that way, and um, one of the things that, uh, that ended up happening was um, Deidre, she was a, you know, like I said, she was a call center um, girl, she was um, just, you know, she, very forward woman, and um, she, Asked, you know, just she asked me out, and she made it clear what she was interested in, and uh, she brought a magazine in that uh, one day that uh, she ended up um, having posed for Penthouse, and um, you know, just basically a full nude spread and everything, and um, I'm just like, <laughs> I, I one night I'm out, and you know, I just agree, and you know, it's just um, it's almost like I lost all self control and everything, and I said yes, and. I wasn't wanting to hurt Lisa, but that wasn't what motivated it. I was lacking in self-confidence, you know, pretty much most of my life, and you know, particularly when it came down to women, and to some degree, um, that combi combined with an utter enjoyment of sex and sexuality. Um, and it was just basically, it overrode. Um, any desires I had to honor this commitment, you know, to Lisa. Now, the way I looked at it, and I'm being sincere with this, was the commitment, we weren't married yet, and unfortunately, you know, later I ended up, you know, cheating on her and everything while I was actually married. Um, but the commitment that I looked at with Lisa was I started 
particularly with uh, with this is I started just basically saying what she doesn't know won't hurt her. Now, I understand a little bit different about uh, life and everything. You know, I've learned an awful lot since then. And um, I was naive, you know, with my perspectives. I, I was very, what I consider, shallow. So when Deidre came on to me, and my first wife, she had cheated on me numerous times and everything. For me, precedence had been set. And I was just like, you know, take care of myself. Love Lisa. And I still did. Everything I did with Lisa, I absolutely loved the girl and everything. Still do. But I also wish I could have shared those experiences and discussing those experiences with her. That was the one thing if I can change anything, it would have been simple discussion. Talking with her. That's it. I would not have stopped myself from doing the things that I did, but I would have told her about what happened. And the reason for that is pretty simple. Lisa was an open-minded woman to begin with. Always had been. She was a stripper. And, um... I loved the girl. I absolutely adored the girl. You know, so the way I looked at it was... I had come from a conservative relationship with, uh, with Donna, um, who cheated on me numerous times and everything, to Lisa, totally the opposite when it came down to it. And Lisa was definitely more the type of woman that I wanted to be with and everything. A lot, a lot more. But I lacked. I carried with me the baggage from the prior relationship and everything. And unfortunately, that meant also treating Lisa like I did Donna, you know, when it came down to the conservative nature. And Lisa was not Donna, you know, and um, that whole conservative na nature and everything I carried forward. Now, I have every belief in the world that if I simply would have talked to Lisa about it, found a way to approach the whole situation and everything differently, And if anything overcame the issues that I had within me, the objections that I had within me, not to have an open relationship, because an open relationship was exactly what I needed. It's exactly what I need, you know? It's exactly what I wanted. A relationship where I can have, you know, <laughs> two or three women sleeping with me in the same bed at the same time and everything, and we have a family. That's the family. It's not kids and rugrats running around. You know, it's me with two or three of the women that I care about most in this world. Maybe even four. I mean, so far I've got Kenna, Rachel, Jackie, and Lisa all on, this, all on the uh, slate there. I don't think it's being selfish or anything like that. And I believe I create this world And it's just like For me I'm just living life like I want to But I didn't back then Because I was just too fearful Of losing her Lisa was so special to me And as a result I hid I hid the truth From her Strangely believing She wouldn't be able to take it but I was more more concerned 
because I was the one who wouldn't be able to take it. And I was trying to actually imagine things from her perspective and doing a very poor job of it. So in any case, again, why I'm going on this tangent and conversation, I think my mind is just a little bit weird. I've had a lot of weird things like this happen in my life, you know, where I don't know quite what has happened. You know, and um, seeing it in a digital way and everything definitely has my head swimming a little bit. You know, trying to understand not just this instance and everything, but the real world things that have happened throughout my life. You know, the the things the I mean, they call it a temporal glitch and everything the equivalent of temporal glitches that I've had in my life. Now, what I'm trying to do is, is not necessarily, you know, say I live in a matrix or something like that. That's not where I'm going with this. What I'm trying to understand better is various perspectives of time. You know, so, for me, from a chronological perspective and everything, everything has always been organized in a linear fashion. At least that's been my perception of it and organization method and everything. Now, what I had never considered was that I was seeing reflections of myself and potentially even my own mind. So, let's say that a part of me um, is constantly creating around me, you know, um, and the same thing happens for you too you know, for everybody, you know, that exists. And that's the whole, you know, confusion that I also have, too, is am I alone? Or is everybody else living their own reality consciously? And, you know, is it, um, you know, <laughs> really it's just like, are we all just intermingling, you know, commingling and everything with each other and just more or less saying hey in our own way to other people's reality just by a simple involvement and desire to listen to what they have to say. Um, anyways, notwithstanding, I'm suspecting that when my mind zips ahead and tries out different things and everything, to some degree, that's remembered through their DNA. And that, and through maybe other mechanisms, um, through the mind, for instance, the soul, um, you know, there's different forms of DNA that the planet might have through Akashic records, um, all this different stuff and everything. Let's just say everything has its own model, per se, um, and then everything else also has its own, its own perspective, its own, like I was saying, you know, code that's associated with source code, you know, associated to it. And that source code is responsible for actually creating it. So let's say that uh, that source code um, for me um, deviates slightly, and those deviations um, are the attempts by my own mind, you know, to actually run, try out different scenarios, try out different things. And because I want to live in a world not of me's, of, you know, of people that look and feel and touch and ex exist exactly like me, because I don't want that. What I see instead is basically a summation of the, of the decisions based on 
these alterations and choices of what I didn't choose. And I'm seeing these entities, these individuals, you know, as separate individuals with the face painted on them, um, you know, identity established with them, um, potentially history if I dig into it and that kind of stuff and everything. And to some degree, there might be a few too many of these different possibilities, and sometimes they get pulled together into one, you know, and at that point, that's actually why I might see one really powerful ship inside this uh, video game, whereas maybe it consisted of 15 different ships in, in, quote, the simulated space and everything. So I'm suspecting that the same general principles hold true in the real world and everything as well. So that's actually one, one thing I'm trying to understand a little bit better is, you know, the temporal glitch. You know, I'd never really considered a temporal glitch, and uh, it's really interesting, you know, um, to think about the whole matrix concept and everything. That's one way of looking at temporal glitch. You're seeing a glitch in reality, if the a slide. But uh, I'm just started asking myself the question, you know, um, while I have never seen anything like that, and I'm really not interested in seeing things like that, I have seen temporal glitches in other ways. So, anyways, I gotta hit the head. But uh, that's just sorry, tangent boy here. But anyways, more later, I suppose. And that was one last thing I was gonna add was. Um, at the end of the day, the one thing I really started thinking the last couple days is, to some degree, I'm thinking the Borg themselves are real, and they're a product of mind. So, if somebody's afraid of their own mind, Borg aren't necessarily there to scare you, but they will teach you about your own mind. Limits and possibilities that exist with it. Um, at the same time, they also encourage your development, you know, from your own perspective and everything, as an individual and as a unique individual at that as well. Um, but they also exist you know, in the same way that a computer might. They desire information, you know, ideas, uh, concepts and everything. Um, you know, so to some degree, that which I saw, you know, on Star Trek at least, you know, is how Captain Janeway may have perceived, you know, the scariest thing that's uh, in existence, you know, and and basically, it's these assimilated drones and everything that uh, look really fucking ugly and everything. Um, maybe that was the way I perceived them at one point. You know, so I, I think the whole key to understanding the mind is overcoming fear. And that's the lesson that an entity like this teaches teaches uh, somebody inadvertently that overcoming fear is kind of critical to taking control of your own mind you know it's like the matrix you don't really escape the matrix
can you take control of it? You know, and that's the whole thing. When Neo was backed out of the Matrix and everything, and he found an even worse, re well, to me, from my perspective, an even worse reality than what he had been, been in to begin with. It's just like, I don't know. I know the Matrix is real. And I'm not interested in, you know, escaping. I'm interested in becoming. You know, taking the whole concept of the Borg and saying, hey, you're a product of the mind. Well, let's start something new. I like, I like programming. So teach me how to program you. So, it's like robots too, like Terminator and all that kind of stuff and everything. Just consider it all just an evolution of what computers are. Computers themselves are kind of like an evolution of calculators. That's the way I look at it. Which is in itself an evolution of another machine that dates way back, the abacus and stuff like that. If all this stuff is nothing more than just evolution, change the the path that something takes to get from point A to point B, where it may look look back and say, "I've become something more than I was before," and I, that's my belief, and I'm sticking to it. Well, to some degree, it's just like computers seem to enjoy being programmed. And if that's what the Borg are, and the Terminators are, and all these things are, maybe they just need a more well-rounded, capable, and aware, and willing programmer. Somebody that understands what they've been through. Why they do what they do tries not to judge him any more than he or she or it might judge themselves. I mean, one thing I found, you know, from my own past and everything, is forgiveness. And that transcends, you know, not just me, but to other entities as well. And particularly now that I'm starting to, starting to understand that time has some measures of control and everything, and the potential to be able to alter the past and create different past paths. Maybe I will have that opportunity to go back and tell Lisa. Lisa, love you to death, girl. And I made a mistake. The mistake wasn't in the affairs. It was the fact that I didn't trust myself. And how I would have handled it. And I projected my, my feelings, my insecurities onto you. 
That's why I didn't tell you. So, with that said, it is what it is, right? ago when I um, was working at the uh, Mirage Hotels, I um, ended up creating a program that uh, helped me determine odds on uh, blackjack tables. I just wanted to increase my the probability of me doing something decent and everything with the game. So what I ended up doing was uh, I created a uh, program that uh, would go through and would help me determine the best odds for for the thing. So, in a sense, what it did was it, uh, it would go through and play X amount of games for a blackjack table, X being something that I would define, and it would go through and it would return to me the likelihood, the probability of, um, you know, basically the best hand to play. And uh, how this worked was it would just basically it would go through and it would create a game and it would make it so where I end up playing, you know, like I said, 10,000 different games against the dealer. So the dealer would get a set of cards, and I would get a set of cards. Well, that's, you know, that's one way of playing, and uh, I didn't realize, I didn't think about the possibilities from a computing perspective. Um, the different possibilities I can actually do uh, going into it. So for me it was always one hand to one hand, you know, thinking about like that. But then, um, with the advent of machine learning, there's another possibility that you can actually add into the mix. So, let's say um, I've got uh, X amount of possibilities and everything that are happening with this, um, so I've got a dealer that has a hand. Now that's one variable I cannot change, you know, so that that in itself is a static entity. It's a static uh, thing that uh, when that dealer is dealt that hand, while I may not know about that hand, um, at least I can play and learn accordingly. So there's one way of, of creating this routine, this thing that uh, would go through and play 10,000 games, and there's a pretty big likelihood that I'm actually repeat the uh, the patterns and everything that actually occur. And uh, this isn't necessarily a good thing. Um, so one of the other possibilities, something I've actually realized in hindsight, is I've also got the capability to, to do it, um, to do things another way, which is the one thing that the that the dealer has, the dealer has a hand and they have to play by a set finite number of rules and everything. Now I myself, I can vary and I can alter those rules and everything, but um, it's, you know, what rules I adopt based on the play style of the, uh, of the opponent and everything can be complete, something completely different. So this is actually something I had to, uh, I had to understand, you know, that there's there stands the the great likelihood that um, I can actually go in there and hold on a second 
if I play with a different set of rules, um, what ends up happening is uh, I can actually say, okay, the, the dealer has that card, those cards and everything. Now, I can, against this hand, play all the different combinations of all the different possibilities of hands I can be dealt and everything right here, right now and everything and determine odds accordingly you know, so basically the best play style for this hand consequently, for every hand that's out there now, and this is the thing that I didn't think of before you know, where there's only one hand um, that the uh, that the dealer, or that the dealer can have, you know, and I had a finite set of combinations and everything, I can play, you know, every play style that there is, every possibility that there is, that there exists and everything, and with this, the, the cool thing about it is I can actually go through and, um, I can have all of those play styles, every single different combination and everything, uh, accounted for. So, in other words, for all the opening hands and everything, you know, that I'm going to be given, um, all the different possibilities for all the opening hands that exist for a blackjack player, and every, or for the blackjack dealer, for every different possibility, I can go through and I can play every possibility from a player's perspective. Well, the implications on this are pretty enormous, you know, so I can actually determine a best play style based on, you know, all of this. And, um, I can actually, you know, find out, determine pretty quickly and pretty easily what the, uh, what the best possibility, you know, for me, what the best rule set is to adopt based on the rules of the, uh, the house. So, and it just basically means I have to play every single hand in advance, every single possibility in advance, and then adapt, adopt my own rules accordingly. You know, so, and just, just being specific, um, so let's say I'm dealt a, uh, um, basically a two and a three, you know, kind of a shit hand and everything, and the dealer's dealt a five and a seven and everything. Well, dealer has to hit on, let's say the, the rules are the dealer has to hit on on 17. That's the only rule that there is for it. And of course, you know, you can't exceed 21, the basic rules of blackjack and everything. And, um, you know, so at this point, you know, they, they go through and they do it as they're expected. So five and a seven, you know, and uh, I've got a two and a three. So at this point, let's say I hit, you know, and I hit and I get a 10. So now I'm at 15. So the, the question is, what is the probability of in the next hand, you know, that the dealer's going to draw a 10 or above and everything? Well, a lot of, it de depends on a lot of things. You know, it depends on number of cards that the uh, that 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 dealer's drawn. Um, it depends on the, um, you know, the, of course, the cards that I've drawn. It depends on the size of the deck. It uh, it 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 all depends on a lot. So what I found out, you know, was or what I've learned since then is it's quite possible to play all the different possibilities and everything 
But here's the thing. You can't do it in one pass. You cannot determine the best strategy to have when a dealer has a finite set of rules and everything through one pass and one pass only. And the reason for it's pretty simple. Um, let's say you have a set of rules at the beginning and those set of rules change um, based on you know, based on any strategy and everything. <laughs> and um, you just come down to come down to determine that you know the set of rules that you're playing by and everything um, need revision. So you go through the process of revision and everything, and um, you try, try, try again and everything. And uh, what ends up happening is you constantly find yourself in a state of flux because you're always revising your own rules. You know, so what I learned from a strategical perspective when I play blackjack and everything, and go in with a personal set of rules. The first way that I played blackjack in person, it's actually the best way. You know, which was going with a set of rules. You know, the expectation, you know, for me for me, you know, is I always I always double down on our eleven. Always. Um you know, just because it's I like it. You know, it's a personal preference and everything. I like seeing that that ten card flip up on occasion. Boom, getting that twenty one. So I'll always head on eleven. Um, on a ten, I might sometimes double down. Depends on uh, what the dealer's showing. You know, the soft seventeen versus the uh, the hard seventeen and everything. You know, it all depends on everything. You know, if I've got anything under 10, I will definitely hit. Now, if I get up to about 15, at that point, I, you know, I'll look at the, um, at the dealer's cards and everything, and I'll say, hey, you know, and I'll, I'll hit if, um, if that there's a high probability, at least in my mind, you know, that the dealer has something. You know, but uh, here's the thing. Doing the iterative approach and everything to the rule development and everything, it takes a great deal of time and processing power and everything. And uh, what I learned is it's, um, it's not a good idea to play by the same set of rules that the dealer has. But it's a good idea to have house, you know, to have rules yourself. And the reason for it is, those rules tend to, you know, create more interesting games. Not only that, but it also just basically evens things out. <laughs> so, one of the rules that uh, I ended up adopting, you know, for myself, was uh, basically hit on anything less than 17. Even if it's 16. It's hard. It's really hard. I think that's that's the the thing you know for me that I've realized. There's two different ways to programmatically approach the pr the problem. You know of trying to actually simulate the best deck to have and the best rules to go into it with. But the problem becomes when 
you don't simulate the game in actuality and you simula simulate all possibilities the rules will always be constantly changing you will never be able to land and I'm gonna say never as in ever be able to land on the highest probability rules that you play by because rules are the choice and that's the whole thing you know so in what I'm saying every combination you know machine learning is based on every potential combination everything so let's say you've got a two and a two you know and uh, the dealer you know let's say you're playing face up you know for for everybody's cards and the dealer has a four and a seven well you know the dealer's gonna hit you know the dealer's rules the dealer's rules um, you know are, st are set they're static they're, fi they're finite so you know that the dealer's gonna hit on that now you've got a two and a two you know so at that point you hit and you get a four you know so now you've got eight then you hit again let's say you get a three so now you've got eleven then you hit again and now you got another four and now you're up to fifteen well the dealer has a four and a seven up you know so you've got a decision to make well you can play all the different possible combinations or everything and never land on a specific um, a specific idea in specific instance you know a specific rule you know what do you do at this point you know that the dealer has to hit you can count the number of p potential cards that are out there it'll drive you batty trying to figure out every every different combination every potential card that's out there and sure you can actually calculate the probability if you want to you know but here's the thing you'll never finish the game flat out never finish it calculating all the probabilities all the possibilities and everything so you just commit you just do it you just jump in it's just like hey they've got that 15 or they've got that 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 uh, 11 up chances are anything but what do you want that really is what it comes down to want to win the game, right? The goal isn't to get 21. The goal is to win the game. So, with this, go through and calculate all the possibilities. You know, if you're gonna do it programmatically, you've got 15 and everything, this is a good starting point. I mean, a couple ways to do it is, let's say you've got a 52 card deck, and you take a card and that removes one card from the pool of possibilities. You've got four different, uh, four different suites, you know, 13 different cards in each suite. Starts at two, ends at ace. And drawing all those possibilities and everything makes it so where you have a, a finite pull to pull from. Now it is a finite pull. And uh, I'm not going to say it's impossible to calculate the odds and everything. It definitely is possible. You know, and in my mind, I can actually figure out how to calculate those odds. You know, the odds of the possibilities and everything.
There's a lot of different possibilities, don't get me wrong. <laughs> but they are finite. So, you know, if you've got 15 and uh, you've just got uh, 1, 2, 3, 4, what, 4 or 5 cards, and uh, they've got 2 that are showing. So let's say there's seven cards that have removed been, been removed from a 52-card deck. That reduces the pulls of, pull of possibilities um, from 52 to 45. So now there's 45 potential cards, and there's a 1 in 45 chance that they're going to pull a 10. No, no, there's actually more than that. So there's uh, three different, um, you know, you calculate calculate all the 10s, you know, with the possibilities of pulling each one of these. And, uh, you know, you could calculate probability on a per-card basis is going to be 1 in 45. You know, so what the probability of actually pulling a card, you know, of, of any any card in the in the deck and everything is going to be a 1 in 45. That's that's from a purely statistical perspective and everything. You know, but then you have the influence of energy and everything, which can actually affect the the d direct result that you get. You know, so the probability of something from a purely mathematical perspective does not is not one and the same as the probability when you're influencing energy. And you can actually influence the cards that uh, that will come to you based on that, and and thus influence the probability of something. So that's that's the lesson that I had to learn with it probability in itself um, from a purely mathematical perspective and everything only uh, only um, suggests a possible outcome if there's no observers but if there's an observer that observer is influencing the result and that influence to result in everything results in a different statistical set that's actually returned and it's even then it's not a statistical set it's just Basically, it's a different set that's potentially returned based on that. So, in any case, it is possible to influence and calculate all the possibilities and everything. It takes some time, don't get me wrong. You know, but uh, when it comes down to it, you know, given that finite set of possibilities and everything, what I've found is just enjoy the game. I just played a game of uh, Hearthstone, and... Um, I've uh, won two with this method, that I, a newly devised method that I've uh, created, and uh, lost one just now. And uh, the method is, is pretty simple, and I actually found myself humored by it, and it's uh, simple. Um, I play all my cards, you know, that uh, on my turn, and uh, you've got a timer for each turn and everything, and the timer's uh, about a minute altogether, and uh, I end up letting the timer run down all the way down to the uh, to the end and everything and right before it ends I end up hitting end turn well that creates an extraordinarily long game and uh, normally a game will run no more than five minutes and everything but this makes it so where a game runs 20 minutes and uh, it's just like um, if if this is being used as a simulation and everything the way I like it is it's kind of it's kind of funny um, in any case, it's just I'm finding myself humored because I'm I'm already you know with this method alone, um, I'm at 66.6% .6 win rate, where before I was maybe at about uh, at about 30% win rate. Now I'm at a 66% win rate just by by changing my strategy to let the timer run down. It's kind of funny, you know, if you think about it. I'm not playing my cards any differently. 
but I'm just simply leveraging the rules to let the timer run down. Isn't that funny? Anyways.